Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you would turn it to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we will be going. This morning we're continuing a little bit of a series that we started on the promises of God. If you were with us last week, we looked at the most comforting and encouraging promises of God from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, which says, I will never leave you or... I will forsake you. God's promise to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. His promise that no matter what happens in the life of a child of his, that there is never a point in time where he will turn his back on us or push us away from him. And the result of that promise is that we can then confidently say, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And I hope that that promise resonated in your ears this week. It's certainly one that brings comfort. It brings encouragement in the darkest of nights, in the hardest of moments, in the most difficult seasons of life. It is always steadfastly, faithfully there. Well, this morning, I want to bring up another promise of God, but I'm going to have you stay in Daniel chapter 3 because that's where we're going to see the illustration of this promise. But in James chapter 4, there's a promise written here. In verse 6, it says, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the promise. There are two things that attract God's attention, the proud and the humble. The the prideful get God's attention in a way that he gives his opposition to them. He is himself ensuring that nothing works out. That those who are arrogant in spirit, arrogant in heart, those who are resistant to him, who declare their autonomy to him, who work to find every pathway they can to assert their own independence and bolster their own activity, God says he is opposed to, he is against them. His face, his motives, his heart, his power is against them. But to the humble, broken, to those who know their sinfulness, to those who know their dependency, to those who know their weakness, to those who in humility go before our God and say, I'm insufficient, I need your grace, I need your power, I need your forgiveness, I need your mercy. It's to the humble that God says that he gives grace. And so we have that great promise, and we know that if there's arrogance in our life, God's opposed to that. We know if there's humility in our life, God gives his grace towards that. But there's a very interesting scene in Daniel chapter 3, and if you have your Bible open there, we're going to learn a little bit today about a scene where we see the arrogant, the proud, and the humble, and what God does with them. It's one thing to teach the principle, it's another thing to see it in living color. Just as an introduction to the book of Daniel, you have a whole lot of different movement going on. You have the children of Israel being deported to Babylon, and the first wave over were a group of young men that were taken, and in that group, we have four of them. We know of Daniel, we know of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, anyone who did any time in Sunday school has some stories in your mind and songs in your mind about these individuals, but there are these four men who are introduced to them throughout the book. There are other individuals too, one of which is Nebuchadnezzar, one of your earliest spelling words that you probably had in Sunday school. We get to know a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 2, as he is 
present more and more, we hear about his relationship with Daniel. And there's a great fondness that he has for Daniel because when questions are asked, Daniel has answers. When dreams are had, Daniel has interpretations. When there's a problem, Daniel is a consistent source of wisdom and proven character and is hallmarked in Nebuchadnezzar's mind as someone to which he can go to for wisdom. Now, at no point does Nebuchadnezzar pretend to be a modest person. He is marked by arrogance. He is marked by his own boisterous personality, his audaciousness. In fact, to him is given credit for some of the greatest building schemes in all the world. He worked hard to ensure that no matter who actually did the work, he got the credit. This is a rather arrogant man, and that's how he lived his life. Now, what happens then in Daniel chapter 3 is a manifestation of his arrogance. What happens on the inside of us is always going to come out on the outside. It's only a short time before what you think becomes words and words become actions. And up until Daniel chapter 3, we hear a lot of words from Nebuchadnezzar. But in Daniel chapter 3, we see some actions. So we pick up in verse 1. Let's look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits, and he set it on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Now you see, what are you building? This is basically an idol of him. 60 cubits means it's about 90 feet. A 90-foot idol, something that's massive to be him. So when you look at him and look at this idol, they're seeing his image. That's what he wanted. He's building this thing so that people will say, oh, wow, look how great you are. And so then he sends out message throughout the whole kingdom, verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. This is a command performance. This is a high state meeting. This is everyone being summoned in, everyone who has any leadership responsibility. Almost all of these would have been appointed by the king already, so their job vocation, their role in society is established by the king. And so he recalls all of them to come back to the central place to see this image. Verse 3 then repeats the guest list. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the magistrates, the judges, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I mean, you get the idea that this is very orchestrated. It doesn't say anything about the attitude of the people who are present. They could have hated Nebuchadnezzar, but they had no choice. They could have despised him. They could have been jealous of him. They could have wanted to have what he had. But here they are, assembled, lined up, ready to go. And so a command is then given, verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. I mean, you, you kind of get this scene in your head of, of you know, that the little animated character that's simply a puppet for whatever script he's handed. And here he is going to call everyone to do something. Verse 5 tells us what it is. At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music. 
Now, I don't know how that statement strikes you, but to me that sounds like chaos. That sounds like you gave your kids a bunch of pots and pans and said, make some music. Growing up as kids, we always listened to a certain radio station, family uh, radio, and they had a kids program that always included the Saturday morning march. And the Saturday morning march, the instructions came over the air to go to the kitchen and grab a pot, a pan, and a wood spoon and march around the house as they played the music. And so as kids, that's what we did. It's like a charade of noise. Unbelievable. And that's what seems to come to mind when you have all this music. And of course, there'd be orchestration and design and order. But what the instructions are is basically when you hear the noise, back to verse 5, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. You hear the music, you bow down. Any questions? All right. But then verse 6 gives a consequence. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There's a lot of redundant words there. A furnace of blazing fire. A furnace of, as opposed to what? What else is in a furnace but fire? And is fire blazing or is it not? It's always blazing. Like that's the whole purpose. The redundancy of all of those words is to create the intensity that something dramatic is about to happen. Something critical is about to happen. You have all the details of who's assembled. That gives elevation to this thing. That gives height to it and shows the strength and the sobriety of who's present. These are all the leaders with all the music, very simple instructions, and a very immediate consequence. This is staggering. This is, you are assembled, you will either worship Nebuchadnezzar, or you will die. It's a, it's a either or, there's no negotiation, there's nothing left out. Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone doing this immediately. And so here, verse 7, the crowd Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. I mean, th- this is spectacular. This is unreal to think that everyone just goes along with it. I mean, you would think that perhaps there's, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people were there, hundreds of thousands, who knows? The point is, you have a massive group all at the same time bowing down to worship this thing. And who knows what's going through Nebuchadnezzar's mind other than, wow, I really am worthy of all their worship. I really am this good. Look what I built. I built this and look at people who are here. I mean, he's just lapping this up. But here's a problem. Verse 8 says, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Oh, here we go. Nebuchadnezzar had his motive, and there are others who are using this as an opportunity to accomplish their goal as well. The Chaldeans hated the Jews, and they would look for any opportunity to assassinate and destroy them. They looked for any opportunity to eliminate them. And so they opportunistically see what's going on, recognize that there's something else in play here, and capitalize on it. So the Chaldeans, they come forward, verse 9, they respond and say to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. 
king have made a decree that every man who the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the God. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Repeating back to him, these are the words, these are the ground rules, this is what you said. But, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the providence of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. There's the accusation. They've targeted these three men, these three individuals. Now, don't think that Daniel was doing something he shouldn't have. Daniel's just not mentioned here. You say, well, why not? We don't know why. Whatever Daniel was doing, he was not a part of this scene. Maybe he had been sent on a journey somewhere. Maybe he had been involved in some other responsibility. He was not mentioned here. It's not that he bowed down to the idol. It's simply that he's not mentioned. We'll ask him when we see him. But what we do know is that there are three individuals who refuse to obey Nebuchadnezzar's command. And the Chaldeans happened to be postured in a place where they could see that. Now, of all the thousands and thousands of people that are there, they have positioned themselves to watch, which tells you they may have had a hunch that something was going to happen here. And so, verse 13, <laughs> this gets so interesting. Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You see the drama being set up. You see the intensity of it. Again, over and again, he's repeating everything from the orchestra. Everything is said constantly. Nebuchadnezzar gives an opportunity for them to comply one more time. And look what happens. Look at how this confrontation results then. In their standing. Shadrach, Meshach, replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't need to give you an answer. You know why? Because the answer was already known. A point I want to draw to you from the text here is the character of their life, their godliness did not start in the midst of the battle. The testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was in place long before the battle began. The godliness of their life, the humility of their life, the dependency of their life, their worship of God, their integrity was in place long before this scene shows up. Why do you think the Chaldeans were positioned to watch them? Why do you think they were marked out already as people who feared God? Because this scene is only revealing what's actually in their hearts. And so when they say to the king, we don't need to give you an answer concerning to this, they're saying, I don't owe you an answer. You know the answer. 
You know who we are. You know who we serve. In their voice, there's no compromise, no debate, no rationalization, no discussion between them. Should we go forward? Should we hold back? No evaluation of the potential outcomes, no flinching. They were not going to compromise. They were in a crowd of people all pressing toward the same worship of a false god, but they were resilient in refusing to comply. And so verse 17 is then their answer. And it reads, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. The strength of their statement came out of a heart that was already surrendered to God. They had already given themselves to God such that there was nothing left for them to do but simply to act in accordance with their faith. They were absolutely committed to do God's will. They didn't look for another outcome or another pathway They simply said, I will stand true even if it costs me my life. They did not for a minute bow the knee in order to gain popularity, gain fame. I mean, how many who were there that day hoped that by complying with Nebuchadnezzar's rule and his authority and his command, if they just did that, then maybe Nebuchadnezzar would smile on them more and they'd get a promotion. That they would have some personal gain out of this by simply complying. And what these three say is that there is nothing you have to offer me. There is nothing that you can possibly give to me because I have God and I need nothing from you. A question that comes out of the text for us to consider is how will we ever stand up against the idols that threaten our life if we don't stand up against the idols that entertain us? How will we ever stand up against the idols that threaten our life if we will not today Stand up against the idols that simply want to entertain us and distract us from obedience. And this is what they're saying, that we're not going to surrender our integrity simply because you want us to do something. We'll stand on our integrity and we'll take the consequences that may come. This is the heart of Job in Job 13 verse 15 when he says, Though me, I will hope in him. Though he end my life, I will still hope in God, even if he does not, as he says in verse 17 and 18. Even if he does not. He's capable. God is capable of taking me out of your hands, rescuing me out of your hands. But even if he does not, then king, we're not going to worship your gods. The test here is not if God's going to spare our life. The test is will we trust him. The test is not will we spare our life. The test is will we trust him. So often we pray for safety. So often we look at trials and we think we want a safe, tranquil outcome. And maybe God's plan is not for safety. Maybe God's plan is actually for greater risk than we ever considered. The test of these men, they're staring at death in the face. They know the king's not bluffing. They know the consequences that are given to them. And they boldly answer the question, and they're resolved to move forward. Well, there's a little bit of intrigue that happens, and look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar 
Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression altered. I mean, that is someone who's knotted up. You ever find yourself doing that? You get angry and your, your forehead wrinkles up and your nose is all scrunched and your eyes are so narrowly pressed together. And you know, There's something about you. People look at you and say, wow, you're really mad. Maybe you've seen that expression on a little kid's face when they're so angry that they're just torqued, turning red in all kinds of colors. You're like, wow, I've not seen anger pour through a two-year-old like that. Go work in the nursery. That's what's going on. That's how juvenile Nebuchadnezzar is. Like he cannot, no category for the audacity of somebody. He's going to say, fine, I'll die. I'm not going to obey. I honor God. I fear God. You do what you want to do. It's not going to change my answer. And so he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't know what kind of thermostat they used in those days. But the point of the seven times more was to say, we're going to get this fire so hot you can melt steel in an instant. We're going to plasma cutter level here. We're just simply applying that thing to anything is going to incinerate it. Verse 20, he commanded certain valiant men, valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes, and were cast in the midst of the, of the furnace of blazing fire. All that detail about what they were wearing tells us that they came dressed for the occasion. They didn't show up in Crocs and board shorts. They showed up in the full regalia that it would take to be in a high-level state meeting. They came prepared for what they were going into, respectful for the environment, appropriate. And yet the king has his special forces soldiers. They are the ones that are chosen to wrap these men up and take them to the fire. Verse 22 shows us a terrible consequence that came with it. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the way this arranged is somewhat like a, a fire chimney, like a silo where you could be at the top and peer down in and see the bottom, fed by a fire pit down at the bottom where they could push coal in. And so there was a vantage point where Nebuchadnezzar and others could look into that pit and see the bottom. And here these men are taken to it and thrown in, and those who take them there are expected to live, but they're not. They're killed by the heat of the flames. Nebuchadnezzar certainly felt no remorse, and here they are. The king's command was urgent. He sends the men in. But as verse 22 says, verse 23, these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. And instantly something happens. They're expected to die. They're expected to die just like the people who took them to their death. They're expected to be incinerated instantly. But in in that very moment, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded stood up in haste and said to his high officials, was it not three men cast into the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance was of the fourth, like the son of the gods. This is insane. Nebuchadnezzar is king. He's the one who has all. So he thinks, and all power, so he thinks. 
There's nothing but shock in him. Doesn't make sense. He thought he was the man. And he glances into the fire, and there are four men, the three he threw in there, who are loosed and walking around. I mean, it's almost, your mind thinks it's an optical illusion. Like, how could they be walking through fire and not be scorched? How are they walking through fire and not be consumed? And who's this fourth one? Well, again, there are certain things in Scripture that the Bible does not tell us. We don't know who it was. It could have been an angel. It could have been Jesus. All I do know is the fourth one was probably there to explain what was happening. Because if you are being walked to your death and you're seeing other people around you die and you're thrown into the fire, your feet hit the ground, your ropes and chains, whatever they'd bound them with, fell off, you want an explanation pretty quick of what just happened. That's all we know is this is the promise of God that I will never leave you or forsake you. This is the promise of God that I'll give grace to the humble. This is the promise of God that I'll resist the proud. What I know is that when I do the right thing and God is with me, then he stands with me. There's an overwhelming sense of the presence of God in the midst of those who hate him when you're doing the right thing. This is Psalm 23. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. <laughs> you go back to the story, verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out in the midst of the fire. I mean, they're walking out of the fire that has just killed other people. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. I mean, not even the smell of fire. Nothing. No impact. This is staggering. There's no damage done, and all they did in the story was stand firm at the beginning. Everything that happens after that is God supernaturally protecting his children, supernaturally watching over them, guiding every element of his creation so that his outcome would be had. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar stops, and he responds and says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. And when he says this, I'm sure there's some in the audience who say, oh, great, here we go again, another decree. But he says, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speak speak offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to the rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. And what you're seeing here is he goes from saying, you will be killed if you don't worship me, to then saying, You'll be killed if you mock their God. Here goes the most arrogant person in the world from threatening the death of anyone who doesn't worship him to threatening the death 
of anyone who makes light of or mocks or speaks ill of the God of these three men. And of course, God then in his kind providence caused his blessing to fall on these and Daniel. And they continued to grow and develop and they continued to have influence throughout the kingdom. And there's remarkable strength that's shown there. But as you hear that whole story, I want to bring it back to a couple of principles that then help us to see what it's like to live that kind of life, particularly in a world like we live in today. I mentioned the first to you in the midst of the story, and that's simply learning now to anchor your mind in truth, to have your mind set in the Word of God and have the Word of God memorized in you so it's flowing through you constantly because the time of testing will show up unannounced and unprepared for, unexpected. You cannot defend what you don't know, and you won't defend what you don't love. And what you see happening here are three young men faithfully, boldly defending something that they had done so for a long, long time. The challenge doesn't start when the enemy's looking you in the eye. The challenge starts when you're facing your own laziness, when we're facing our own distraction, when we're facing our own unwillingness to open of God because we're so entertained by opening something else. Anchor our minds in truth, knowing what we believe, knowing what we don't believe. If we were removed from every spiritual influence, every accountability, every person around us that brings encouragement, would we still press towards spiritual things? Would we still press towards the word of God? Do we have the ability to stand firm? That's the first lesson that comes out of these three men's life. It's not learn the Bible in the heat of the moment. It's learn the Bible now before the trial begins, before the challenge shows up. Anchor your mind in the truth. Second, speak the words of truth. Speak the words of truth. The contrast between these two men is so staggering that you have Nebuchadnezzar who boasts of his might, who boasts of his riches, who boasts of his wisdom. Jeremiah 9, 23, where God says, don't boast of your might, don't boast of your wisdom, don't boast of your own strength. Don't boast of your own intellect. But verse 24, Jeremiah chapter 9 says, Boast in this, that you know and you understand me. That you know and you understand me. That it's God who we know. We read his word and we know about him and we understand how he works. We understand how he acts. We understand what he's doing. Not only do we have to have our minds anchored in truth, but we have to have the ability to speak the words of truth, to use our voice, to speak up when time is required of us, that we would defend the faith and explain to others about who Christ is, doing what's right, trusting God for the grace to happens what, to deal with what happens next. I would think that if we found ourselves in that, with those three, that there'd be something in us that would want to do the right thing, but maybe flinch because we evaluate the outcome. We cannot reverse engineer obedience. I can't determine the outcome and then decide if I'm going to obey. I've got to take the time to make sure that I understand the word of God and that I decide that I'm going to obey regardless of the outcome. If I compromise when the consequences are minimal, how are we ever going to stand when the consequences threaten our life? Not only do we anchor our mind in truth, but we speak the words of truth. Third, stand alone on the truth. 
I challenge you now, particularly young people, as you're going into school, and that's starting back up very quickly here, and you're going to be immersed in a world that's different than your world around your family and those going into the workplace who are immersed in a different world than what you experience even in this room, to get used to standing alone on the truth. Get ready to be the outcast. Get comfortable living a lonely life where having to deal with hard things is normal. Get ready to stand alone and don't fear it because that's where God has you and that's the life of those who follow him. What we experience in this room is very unique. To gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ who, who imperfectly and sometimes clumsily are striving towards godliness but are at least moving in that direction. Running from and running towards the right things. But there's a part of us that's called to stand alone, even when I don't know what he's doing. Even when I don't know what he's doing. That was Job in Job 23 when he says, I go forward and he's not there. Backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. What he's saying is, I don't know what God's doing, but I know what's required of me, and that's to do the right thing, regardless of the outcome. That's a lonely life, and it was certainly a lonely season for Job, where there was no true voice of encouragement, and all he could draw on is the power of what God had given him. Don't compromise, cheat, don't lie, not even the smallest places, not even the places that only God sees. Learn to stand alone on the truth. Last, fourth, I'll tell you this. Learn to stand together on the truth. You say, wait a minute, you just said stand alone. That's true. You've got to stand alone in this world. But also you stand together. What I like about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is we don't know necessarily their history. We don't know if they were brothers or cousins or if they were best friends from childhood or if they just found each other. But I can tell you one thing. The three weren't standing separately. The three were standing together. And when the battle happened, they knew who their brothers were. They knew who they needed to be around. It's always true that you put a group of people together, within a few hours, the most ungodly and the most godly will find each other. We see that all the time in the college environment. You bring in a group of people from all over the country, a couple hundred, you put them in a room, and within a couple hours, the most godly people will find each other and the most ungodly people will find each other. Because you're drawn, you're magnetized towards the same things. And that's what these three men were. They were drawn towards God. They were drawn towards conviction and courage. They were drawn towards faithfulness and holiness. And when they looked around, they were standing with others who were equally trying to walk faithfully before God. I mean, this is Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. That you learn to stand together. You find the other Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednego in the room, and you walk with them. Knowing where you stand, where you build your life is critical. And it has to be in place now, long before the idol is built, and the fire is lit, and the test is presented to you. This is what Romans chapter 12 is telling us. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your body a living and holy sacrifice, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship? I mean, that was, that was those men. They put their bodies as a living sacrifice. They said, God, I'll do what you want me to do, even though it will cost me my life. Verse 2 of Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what those men did. They proved what the will of God was by making themselves a living sacrifice. And in the midst of that tremendous display of humility before God, they found God's grace. During World War I, there's a chaplain named Stuttered Kennedy. And he would write from the front lines. And he had a very young son at the time, and he wrote a letter to his wife for his son. And he said this, the first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe, but God, make make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Life and death don't matter, right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still. But daddy dishonored before God is something awful, too bad for words. Then he writes, I suppose you'd like to put in a bit about safety too, old chap, and mother would as well. Well, put it in, but put it afterwards, always afterwards, because it really does not matter nearly so much. It's a sobering statement from the front lines of a battlefield to a young son who wanted his dad's safety but to learn that more than safety, his dad wanted bravery. He wanted integrity. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to us today, too. That more important than safety is bravery. More important than security is integrity. More important than any pride in our life or boasting ability is humility before God who says, if you're humble, I will give you grace. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are the one who does give grace. You are the one who does give comfort and peace. You are the one who knows our weakness, knows our inability, and yet meets us with the strength of your spirit who indwells us. Lord, the faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrated proved hearts that were all surrendered to you, hearts that were already seeking to honor you, hearts that desire love you and do what you say regardless of the consequences. I pray that you would give that resolve to us and give us immediate opportunities to demonstrate it. That as the battles and challenges of life grow greater, we would be able to see your grace in even greater ways. In your name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.